Hi everyone, welcome to yet another episode of Remote Respectfully Disagree. Um, so this week, everyone is in a rather grim mood because of um, what's been happening in the US and um, the way in which people are mobilizing around the murder of George Floyd. Um, so there's there's a lot of grimness and a lot of reconciling with what's happened in the past, but there's also positivity and hope for change. And um, we thought that it might be interesting in light of this, one of the discussions that's been happening is around the use of violence for protesting and what violence means as a means of resistance and changing the narrative around the way in which we look at violent protest, especially given the kind of discourse we saw around, you know, violence and especially around the burning of a bus during the time of the anti-NRCCA protests and given the kind of legacy that we have as a country which is widely associated with um, Mahatma Gandhi's non-violent protests, we thought it would be super interesting to actually engage with this question and to think about whether violence is a valid form of protest or not. This is Shrishti, your host, by the way. So to start off with, um, I just want to go around and like ask everyone on the team how you felt about, you know, what happened in the US and the defense of violence and the criticism of violence and, you know, that whole debate. Hi, I'm Rajvi. I'm the culture editor at The Swaddle. Um, so, yeah, I mean, the images of, you know, like that station house in Minneapolis on fire, like NYPD, cop cars, like burning in New York City, like all of those were very potent images that, like kind of hit me you know that oh things are getting serious um personally i think violence is a completely valid form of protest especially looking at like the long history of violent racism and subjugation that black people have had to endure in the united states right so carla and aditi like before you sort of talk about like your thoughts on what happened in the us i also wanted to talk to you about because this is something that happened to me right like and at the time that the whole bus burning incident and violence in the nrcca anti-nrcca protest became like a big discussion point I found that like there was this conscious effort to move away from that narrative and to say, look, there are so many peaceful protests. Look, women peacefully protesting for 100 days or whatever. Like I found even myself and obviously discourse around in the media, etc. We found that it was important to, you know, emphasize that when we wanted to get more support from people or whatever. Do you think it's changed how you've even looked at the NRC protests and the use of violence then as well? Hey, I'm Aditi. I'm a features writer here. Uh, I... Personally, wasn't uh, like quite uh, sold on the distancing myself from the violence bit. In fact, uh, I actively wanted to like uh, I I actively wanted to see more aggression because like I was under like this uh, weird sort uh, weird assumption that uh, we wouldn't like the people who are protesting wouldn't receive as much attention or as much or wouldn't be taken seriously unless like a bus or two was burnt. So, um, so yeah, like, it's it's really interesting, like, just the other day when there's this whole conversation happening about, like, why Indians are not speaking out against, uh, like, local issues uh, as they are about BLM, for example, I saw this tweet that said that, you know, like, Indians, especially being in a collectivistic culture, are, like, very non-confrontational, so, um, like, protest is kind of, uh, like, intertwined with insubordination, and that's not, like, acceptable. I don't know if I can make this generalization about, like, the entire, like, entirety of India but it was just like a very interesting thing to see when Aditi said that it was like protest is kind of new to us like that's what I thought about. I have to respectfully disagree a lot with that statement but I'll I'll take that later. This is Carla. Um, I'm American as you might be able to tell by my accent and I've been watching um, what's been unfolding in the U.S. with very sort of extreme emotion um, and I will say just r- picking up on what some other people said that you know, we have to draw a distinction. When we when we use the word violence, 
there is a distinction to me between like interpersonal violence versus violence, let's say against property, right? Like destruction of property and some of the looting that's happened. And so in some of the criticisms of the way that the protests have evolved over the past few days in the US, every time somebody brings up this looting, I, I just don't get it because to me, the interpersonal violence that was inflicted upon George Lloyd and that has happened repeatedly in the US through police brutality has actually been institutionalized in the form of certain laws and and police policies like like New York stop and frisk policy, right? This idea that you can be physically more aggressive with certain types of people because they're more likely to commit a crime. So to me, when we talk about sort of this the 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 protests being violent because like a cop car got burned down or a Chanel store got looted, to me like on the hierarchy of violence, like it is so clearly so so far below arguably the worst form of violence you can inflict on another human being, which is killing them. It seems obvious that we shouldn't care about that anywhere near as much. Like a bunch of people like taking a few North Face bags, like I was actually kind of cheering. <laughs> it wasn't even something that I felt bad about. But I will say, Kara, like it's interesting. So, you know, th- there have been like black people, especially in the US have been, um, you know, at the receiving end of a lot of brutality and kind of like stigmatization and like racial profiling, right? So I think that also folds into what communities can Uh, have the privilege to be violent in a protest. I also want to take that point to sort of talk about how all of us, like across our different backgrounds, etc., were taught about protests in school and to actually like think of the idea of when was the first time that you were um, exposed to the term and what was the difference you saw in the way in which like your school talked to you about it and and what you learned in your textbooks maybe. I remember the first time I actually protested, okay? So I went when this was when I was uh, so this happened every single uh, year from class one to class four okay and i was uh, in a uh, school run by a pacifist okay and one of the tenets of the school's like ethos was that you can't eat meat okay so every year they would take us out and they would give us all these us tiny kids like a bunch of placards that say ban meat and then they we just march around <laughs> the city <laughs> it made no sense. We hated every second of it because it wasn't a cause we believed in or cared too much about. So, yeah. For me, okay, so I didn't like physically go to a protest until much later. I think probably when I started college because I'm from like a small town in Gujarat and it's like BJP run and like in my town, nobody spoke out against anything. Like the BJP dudes could do whatever they wanted. Um, But I do remember like in my textbooks at least, like we kind of learned a lot about the French Revolution, the American Civil War or the Russian Revolution and all of those kind of culminated um, in the victories for the protesters uh, and there was some amount of violence that's, that was like included in that. But Shishit is again to your point about how I studied the Indian independence like Bhagat Singh and Netaji Subhashandra Bose and the Forgotten Army as the Amazon Prime original like the Azad Hind Forge like why all of those were in my um, textbook. Almost every chapter ended with then Gandhiji did this, then Gandhiji did that, and then Gandhiji was nonviolent, and then we won. Um, so I do think that while we have a history of being um, like violent against like against like an out like outside entity, like a foreign entity, I do think that when it comes to maybe it is the solidarity that comes out of uh, sh- sh- sharing like a colonial past, but uh, I do think that when it comes down to kind of uh, protesting against like 
domestic regimes um maybe um that collective that collective ideology like falls like comes into play but uh, yeah i mean most of my textbooks always showed non violence as the standard of protesting and i never really learned about the very valid contributions of a lot of radical violent freedom fighters that basically aided gandhi ji in what he finally was able to accomplish i would argue that this has something to do with the way that we teach these histories right and in some weird way it's kind of this idea that like you know that concept that like the winner gets to write history history is written by whoever wins okay so like once something has settled into a certain norm then we rewrite the history books to sort of make that make sense right and it's very convenient to look back as you were saying rajvi and sort of now that now that you know the british are gone and we are independent it was all accomplished in this deeply peaceful way of course right and like that's just a convenient retelling of what actually happened if you think about in the us there's this you know we we all study um american history in the us obviously and um and and protest has this sort of deeply american sort of feeling there right this idea that the, the right to protest is deeply american and it all goes back to um obviously the time of the british right and the time when um there were 13 colonies and one of the first things that you learn pre-american independence one of the first things that the sort of revolutionaries the colonists did was the boston tea party i don't know are you guys familiar with the boston tea party did you study that right so what was the boston tea party the boston tea party was a bunch of colonists get together they're you know freedom fighters and they go ransack the British royal ship in the Boston Harbor that's holding all the tea that it sent to America and they throw it all in the sea, right? It's looting. But it's it's clearly looting. It's exactly what, you know, it's exactly what protesters right now are doing in the US. But because it was part of a freedom struggle, it's been reframed as this like highly romanticized sort of turning point and it is taught to children as the moment when like that, you know, the independence movement really picked up steam. a lot of the times like the truth right like as you said kind of the histories histories are written by the people who win but like you looking at a lot of the times when the media covered uh, protests at the time or whatever like i'm always like how have we after so many years ended up with such like a singular like linear idea of what happened then and i feel like a lot of it plays out today also um the way that the nrc ca protests were covered for example right like um the the media still calls students rioters like they still call them looters like there were certain names like with a lot of negative connotations like associated with student protesters while the cops even if one cop fell down like a profile would be written on the cop being like oh look at this poor guy like he's just been attacked by a bunch of students so i mean 50 years from now like when we look at this time i'm sure that another linear version of history will be repeated by somebody else um because we just aren't aren't doing a good enough job of like uh covering the sides that are actually agitating i think that would force us to also ask the question that i think which is something which has come up be it in like blm coverage anti nrcca or even in the way in which like we've been taught about gandhi at like why he was so life changing both in india and globally as you said kala pr campaign in the us as well but um why do you think we see non violence as a morally superior form of protest uh i mean uh, clearly non violence is seen as a morally superior form of protest because it's a lot more easily controllable by the state that is my first hypothesis yeah it's it's like if you're silent it's just easier to ignore 
your silence like i i understand and that's the whole like black first controversy that we just talked about but i also th- like I, i was reading about this idea especially coming from like civil war uh, era america um that uh, now that like It, it was very much established that nonviolence is a morally superior form of protest so then it was almost adopted as a strategy by protesters themselves that we will protest in large numbers in places where we know the police officers and the commissioners to be like a little um you know they could like fly off the handle really easily and so we will do it there so the image that's created around the protest is that nonviolent protesters are being um attacked by the police and because that scenario um a lot of like social scientists have proven is the most um va- like effective in creating empathy amongst like viewers so i feel like now it is morally superior as yes, but it's also become a strategy and throughout time and that has just become reinforced and reinforced and reinforced um and now suddenly it's like a standard that any deviation from is looked at very derisively okay hold on <laughs> I just want to go out on a limb with this group and say like wouldn't it be better if stuff wasn't broken like if you could accomplish the same results right <laughs> like like there's a, it's not morally superior it just is better like if you could accomplish just think about it theoretically if you could accomplish the exact same results but not a single person gets hurt and not a single thing gets broken and you know what I mean like there is no destruction and no violence of course that would be better but to, to me the question is does it work and can it ever accomplish the same result um and and one of the things i mean we have to also look at like other instances of ways that people have protested that fall somewhere on that spectrum between like completely blowing shit up and like you know having basically like warfare on the streets um and silent protest of a sort that completely doesn't work like the black squares but you know something interestingly like occupy wall street which i think theoretically had potential right this idea that you come physically occupy a space where you are not wanted and not present right in a space that that is exclusionary right that leaves people out and you you take it over and you physically occupy it to force people to pay attention as a strategy i actually think that's an interesting midpoint between complete nonviolence and complete destruction unfortunately with occupy wall street it didn't work but you know whatever the the point still stands that it's an interesting attempt even in blm right now like all, most of the protests are peaceful in which the police is the agitator and i think it's the same in india as in the us in the sense that you don't really know where you stand you know you could get permissions for a protest you could very easily legally occupy that space and suddenly a switch flips and they are like putting plastic handcuffs on you and taking you to jail so like with the unpredictability that comes with handling or dealing with like a state force that is so fickle um i feel like coming to a protest displaying your strength and sometimes looting um or like these are all like displays of strength of like a collective group uh, i feel are very effective there's also the discrepancy between how nonviolent protest is treated depending on who is protesting and i think this was this has been raised quite a bit in blm in the past few days um i heard from uh from a friend in miami a very interesting thing and this is this is totally anecdotal um but but what she relayed was that there was this one sort of peaceful protest in this part of town which is this sort of more tony upscale mostly white part of town where there was this protest and everybody gathered and the police were there and in fact the police took a knee in a show of solidarity 
And the protest sort of moved on and dissipated and then picked up in another part of town, um, which is a much more sort of a low income neighborhood, predominantly black. And within five minutes, the police were shooting tear gas canisters and trying to disperse people. And like the, the police reaction was just like night and day you know, completely different dependent on whether they were surrounded by white protesters or black protesters. And I think that should also inform the way we look at these situations is that like, you know, there are, there's, there's, the police are in many ways the ones who are instigating in this, in the BLM thing. And I think what's fascinating is that now, because everyone's got a smartphone, we are now seeing it like marginalized people may have told us about this, you know, 30 years ago, 40 years ago, 100 years ago during protests. But now we can actually see that it's happening and that the police are the instigators in so many of these instances. And I think it's hopefully going to change the way people think about what is happening and who's really responsible for that violence. Yeah, like I completely agree in the sense that I like I think there's a distinction we made. I don't think that people who are like out to protest, like have like a predetermined notion that I'll go and then I, I'm going to do this and I'm going to fuck shit up. You know, I don't think it's that. It's, it's like in the moment when you are facing so much violence and aggression from like an institutional force who like who is showing up with weapons. Um, I think it's like a split second decision making of like how to kind of balance out the situation. Um, and in that sense, like that's what people were saying, right? Like the idea is not to kind of um, reduce the intensity of agitation, but like appeal to more white people, for example, in BLM to come and like stand between me and the cop, you know, like, like use your privilege to protect me. Don't tell me that I have to tone it down. Just join the fight and do whatever you can to not let me go to jail. I was just going to ask, I'm curious if any of us can think of a protest or social movement or civil disobedience movement that resulted in like clear quantifiable change, like new legislation or like, you know, marked a turning point in a society that was completely peaceful. Like, can we think of one? So it's interesting, like uh, I, uh, the Anna Hazare movement, for example, like the 2011 anti-corruption one, I mean, there was violence, so there was violence from the state, but it it was like a couple of years. I mean, it's like very complicated that they they were trying to go for an anti-corruption bill, and then Arvind Kejriwal like like uh, split from the Anna Hazare movement uh, to kind of like make his own like make AAP and run in Delhi, but couldn't uh, get any uh, like couldn't get the bill passed at, at the, in the Delhi government. And then I remember reading that in a year, like like a version of it was passed at the center but as we all know corruption is very rampant and i don't think that we've made any good headway in it but like yeah, yeah like, i was gonna I, say i don't think that works <laughs> yeah like to i think to appease protesters like the the government can go very far into like you know solidifying bills or whatever but um when it comes to actual in implementation like who who's going to ask like 10 years later i was just thinking like as we look back we've been taught about some of these things you know as i was reflecting when we were getting ready to record this all of these examples i can think of where there's been like a huge step forward in terms of social change have all been marked by this like violent period even i don't know um how familiar you guys are with like the the stonewall riots in the us um so the stonewall riots are considered by many to be sort of the birthplace of like modern LGBTQI, like sort of queer rights movement in the US, at least in the West, right? And it was seven days of brutal violence. 
that's what kickstarted all of this, right? And so like, even as we look back on like how far we've come when it comes to LGBTQIA rights, like it all started with this like bloody violent seven days. Yeah, for sure. I think just to add to something that like all of you said in different ways, but I think because of this, like even assertion on peace as being morally superior or whatever, I think that also ends up taking the form of like certain kind of leadership, which when a movement is like popular or widespread, you do tend to go for, say, in the case of India, like leadership, which is Savarna or leadership, which, you know, where you articulate yourself a certain way and the idea of being angry, which is often, you know, anger is often how when you're marginalized, you express yourself, that is looked down upon and that's not seen as being constructive you know so even with say the Anna Hazare movement which is probably one of the biggest movements we've seen um, since independence and like in terms of you know the scale the number of people involved all of that you can also see the repercussions of that and the way in which the different factions also have sort of ended up marginal marginalizing the marginalized in a way but I think I want to go back to something that you'd said Carla about like um, how like in, in you know that anecdote from Miami and how um, the police behave very differently in a district which is predominantly black and in a district which was predominantly white. And I want to sort of talk about um, what are the kind of narratives that we've seen around violence, you know, and a lot of us have spoken about how violence is justified, like sort of touched upon like violence being justified when it's done by the state. So what are the kind of narratives that we've grown up with? I think especially in our movies, especially in our TV shows, the kind of narrative around Kashmir, I think was definitely something which until I went to college, to be very honest, I wasn't even exposed to Kashmiri people's point of view in a sense. It was always like a piece of land which India and Pakistan were vying for and it was ours and we had to take it. Literally any movie I can think of where there's like a there's like a police presence, like it's always like, oh, the police are out to do good deeds. And if, for example, somebody dies at the hands of of a police officer, uh, it's collateral damage. Like they never meant to. Even with Kashmir, I mean, the, or, or the US, for example, with its like savior efforts and a lot of um, countries, like most of the time it's that, that if, if it's an institution, if it's like a governmental institution or like a state, then they have good intentions. But then if people die, it's just like collateral damage. But for example, with the, with the people of Kashmir, like the stone pelters, um, for example, who were who like, I said, throwing stones at the army, for example, like that's, it, it's like if the people do it, then it's like malice or uh, some kind of insubordination or uh, like a not acceptable form of expressing themselves. Uh, but when we look at deaths at the hands of the state, uh, a lot of the times, um, I don't think that we hold enough institutions properly accountable for those. Depending on where your sympathies lie, right? And depending on your perspective and where you sit, you might view this situation very differently. But here's a quote. While no one condones looting, on the other hand, one can understand the pent-up feelings that may result from decades of repression and people who have had members of their family killed by that regime for them to be taking their feelings out on that regime, right? This quote from Donald Rumsfeld, he's talking about Iraq. This was from 2003. He's talking about the Iraq war and the regime that he is so so against is, you know, Saddam Hussein, right? And so like when you're trying to topple a regime, it makes sense to talk about this horrible oppressive regime and how it makes complete sense that when you're oppressed, you should, you know, you should violently overthrow the shackles of that oppressive government. So I think it really has to do much more with the framing and 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 where your own motivations and sympathies and empathies lie. Uh, I remember this genre of Bollywood movies and uh, South Indian movies that came out that were glorifying this guy, uh, this particular type of cop who's called an encounter specialist, okay? And like, 
the point of an encounter specialist is that they kind of shoot at sight and like just uh, that's it. That's like you don't get a trial, you don't get anything. You're just you're dead. And uh, there was this whole like I think it was Aptak Chapan and Risk and stuff like that. The old that old Nana Patekar movie. I don't know. All of these movies showcased encounter specialists as these badass cops who are vigilantes. They're fighting crime. They're very cool. And then you see some form of an encounter happening exactly during the Hyderabad rape case, where the perpetrator, the alleged perpetrators, were literally just shot because apparently they attempted to escape and nobody really knows the truth of that matter and there was no trial and you don't even know if they committed the crime it it is just that's it open shut and close so like it it's very telling of like what you want to glorify and what you don't want to glorify when it comes to like cop movies especially I think that like as human beings, we're also like, we tend to be very simplistic in our understanding of narratives and we're very good guy, bad guy oriented, right? And so you're raised with this idea that like the cops are the good guys who are out to get the bad guys, right? And pop culture reinforces it, film reinforces it. Like we're constantly being fed this. Mainstream media in, the, in India and in the US has failed to show us the counter narrative. And that's actually the entire role of media. Like, the whole point of news existing is to try to bring in all of these various perspectives. We're never given them. One of the things that has actually been um, really illuminating for me during the past few days, watching, um, you know, watching this sort of movement unfold in the U.S. while I'm sitting in India, is to see through Instagram some of the police-initiated and perpetuated violence, completely unprovoked violence coming like seemingly out of nowhere that I guarantee you 30 years ago, if this had happened and we didn't have social media, I wouldn't be able to see it. And I hope that that, you know, not, not that it's pleasant to see these images at all. It's horrible. Like, you know, and, and I don't think anybody, you know, wants to engage with that type of violence on a regular basis, but I hope that it shows people that the, you know, the two or three people looting the Apple store are not the instigators in so many of these situations. And the narrative is far more nuanced, far more complicated. And you really need to engage with these issues on a much deeper level to come to conclusions. It's not just good guy, bad guy. But you know, something which, which we sort of brought up in this discussion is like stone pelting and the idea of symbolic violence. And I think there there is also a similarity when we have to like confront and talk about stone pelting, looting, arson, and just sort of talk about what kind of in protest, what violence is considered legitimate? And do you think there's a point at which some kind of violence crosses the line? Do you define it for yourself? Have you seen it be defined? One of the biggest um, kind of uh, contradictions that arose out of this BLM, for example, was this one Bangladeshi guy's restaurant um, that was, I think, burned uh, slightly. And then he came out uh, in still in like support of BLM to be like, it's okay that my like my business has been you know kind of ruined, but uh, I it's understandable and I'm still with Black Lives Matter. I think it is a highly subjective uh, thing. I don't think it's for me to kind of say what is okay and what is not okay. It really matters the amount of aggression that the other party is showing toward you. It really matters how angry you are. It really matters like which group is um, you know on the streets and talking about their own subjugation so I don't think there is an answer to that and I, I don't think there could there could possibly an answer to that I was thinking of one possible framework for um for evaluating how we think about this which is this concept 
um, of self-defense in criminal law. So in US criminal law, self-defense is a defense to murder, right? If somebody comes at you and you legitimately think that they're about to kill you, you can kill them in self-defense, right? And you will not be prosecuted for murder. So I think there's this very sort of a uh, widespread notion that if somebody is coming at you with lethal force, you're allowed to meet it with lethal force in, in most states in the US. Um, and so in many ways, like as I've thought about how what's happening in the US has escalated, it feels to me like on some level, the black community is exerting their right to self-defense against a police force that is systematically targeting them and killing them. And that's one way to consider the use of violence in this, which I think mitigates it and, and justifies it to a certain extent. I think I completely agree. And that's a super interesting way of looking at it as well. I just want to ask, like in the Indian context, do you think we're kind of weighed down by this Gandhian legacy of nonviolent protest and this legacy, this Gandhian legacy of civil disobedience? Okay, I, I would like like to reiterate the double standard, right? Like it's like oh, it's it's the very entrenched ideas of like faith in institutions um, versus like I guess distrust distrust of like student protesters, for example. Like no matter how violent the cops, like they will always get the benefit of the doubt, and no matter how peaceful student protesters are, like even if they like raise one hand with one stone, suddenly yeah, like you start as a categorizing them oh or like oh you're a muslim student and then you you get called like a jihadi um i i think yes to a certain extent we are way down by the nonviolence like i say like standard but we apply it very selectively there's also that massive uh, propaganda machine right like some some forms of violence are anti national and some forms of violence are to protect the nation like, for example, uh, the same state that would go ahead and call like literal students, like students who are just standing there and, I don't know, shouting a bunch of slogans, violent, a gang, anti-national, you name it, would go ahead and uh, glorify something like a Pulwama. It, it's not even seen as violence. Somehow that, I think we don't even call it violence. We don't even give it like a negative connotation. So I think something which we've sort of been skirting around a little bit, but like as I think we draw towards the conclusion of is violence a valid form of protest, which I think all of us kind of agree with, but we disagree on the nuances of that a little bit. But I just want to talk about, um, do can we think about how we characterize violence in general? And is there, um, what forms of violence do we associate like negativity with and what form of violence do we see as being positive? We've all spoken about like, the role of the state, etc. But even generally, you think like, say, violence in video games and, and the whole discourse around that, or, you know, say domestic violence or uh, violence as self-defense being okay. Like, do you think there's something to be said between that and the use of violence in protest? Generally, I would say that I, I abhor violence. I, I don't like it in any form. So I would prefer for things to get done in a completely nonviolent way. But I also accept the fact that there are times when violence may be justified because there's a greater purpose at stake. There's something else that's more important than maintaining the sort of non-violent status quo. Um, I think at the end of the day, what matters is how the marginalized group that needs to, like that is fighting for a cause, like how they 
view the best form of protest that they want to like display it to the world like that's the most important because you know like we can theorize all we want like sitting at home but when you are actually out on the field and like police people are like running at you like it's it's very difficult to kind of predetermine or like oh if this happens and i'll do this like it like it, it's just not possible it doesn't happen like that so i think at the end of the day just like listen to people who are fighting or are in the middle of it or most affected by like some kind of oppression and then let them determine what the best route forward is yeah i think i completely agree with that and like be the person who stands between the i think all of us as coming from a lot of privilege in our societies be the person who stands between the cop and the um person they're likely to murder you know be that in india or be that um in the us and i think that's a great note to end our podcast on when we think about whether violence is a valid form of protest those of us who have privilege and those of us who grown up reading histories watching movies which have always glorified violence by the state and always misportrayed narratives of violence which have been against the state or violence which is resistance i think we really need to rethink how we characterize uh, the validity of violent protest thank you for listening everyone and see you again next thank week you. i have a question is this the least we've ever disagreed <laughs> oh, I think yeah. so. I think so.